Let's just open in a word of prayer as we finish up with Lucifer and the origin or origin of all the evil angels. Uh, interesting stuff today. Father God, as we come to this last uh, section concerning angelic beings, Lord, I pray that it would um, strike us that there is an entire other world, the supernatural world. It is real. It's not uh, a myth. It is not just a figment of our imaginations, but it is a very real operating world right now, even as we speak. And Father, I pray that that just sobers us and helps us to realize there's more than just this physical life that we're living. We are creatures that have been created with a soul. We've been created in the image of our Creator. And Lord, we long for that day when our eyes are opened and we see things as they truly are. So, Father, I pray that you'd bless this time together now in Jesus' most precious name. Amen. So, the Bible talks about angels a lot, a lot. And that's why I took some time, and I told you the last time we were together that the reason that I wanted to take this time to talk about angels before I get into the foundations of Genesis and so forth is because in Genesis chapter 3, we're introduced to this serpent who tempts Adam and Eve, who fall into sin and bring the rest of the world into sin. Um, There's no foreshadowing for that. There's nothing. It's just like chapter 3, verse 1, it just introduces. And so I wanted to prepare us for that. And uh, so that's why we talk about angels. There are well over 100 references to angels in the Old Testament and over 160 messages about angels in the New Testament, and some are even quotes by Jesus himself. A study of angelology reminds us that there is an unseen world all around us. And that unseen world is inhabited by a host of created spirit beings that sometimes appear to people, but are always present whether we see them or not. They're always present. A great illustration of this truth is in 2 Kings, and I'd like you to turn there. 2 Kings, and go to chapter 6, please. Second Kings, chapter 6, I'd just like to read these verses beginning in verse 8. Now the king of Aram was warring against Israel, and he counseled with his servants, saying, In such a such a place shall be my camp. And the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, saying, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Arameans are coming down there. Well, the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God had told him, and thus he warned him, so that he guarded himself there, and more than once or twice. Now, the heart of the king of Aram was enraged over this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, will you tell me which one of us is for the king of Israel? There's a mole in the camp here. How did they know? Okay, Verse 12, one of his servants said, no, Lord, it's not any of us, O king, but Elijah. Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. Okay, there's an inside connection going on here. 
And so that king said, go and see where he is that I may send and take him. And it was told him saying, behold, he's in Dothan. And so he sent horses and chariots and a great army there. And they came by night and surrounded the city. They besieged the city. Now when the attendant of the man of God, Elisha, had risen early and gone out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was circling the city. And his servant came to him and said to the prophet, Alas, my master, what shall we do? Meaning he was afraid. Verse 16, so the prophet answered him and said, Don't fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And I'm sure the servant looked around him and thought, "Uh Uh-uh, you haven't gone out yet and seen how many horses and chariots there are. Then Elijah, uh, Elijah, excuse me, Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Okay, the prophet knew because he lived by faith, his servant had to have his eyes opened. And then he saw the world all around him and what Elijah was talking about. There are many more of us than there are of them. I'll tell you, we've learned that angels are real. And we take it by faith. I've never seen an angel. I've never seen a demon. But I pray to a God that I've never seen either. And we need to understand that there is a supernatural world they have names, the angels have names like sons of God, holy ones, spirits, watchers, that's interesting, thrones, dominions, principalities, and authorities. Those are all names for angels or groupings of angels. There are basically three um, designates of angels that we know of, cherub or cherubim, okay, the flaming, uh, the cherubim that protected the garden after Adam and Eve were escorted out of the garden. Uh, they protected it with flaming swords. They have wings. Seraphim, they have wings. And there's an archangel whose name is Michael. It's the only angel that we know of that is called an archangel, but there is one other angel that is named, and that's Gabriel. The rest of them, we don't know their names. But it's interesting that they have names which means they're individuals. I would assume that they have personalities. Um, Very interesting. And someday we will see them as they are. But right now we can't. So I want to talk just a little bit about the creation and fall of angels in review. The angels are part of God's created universe. And they were all created collectively at the same moment. And they are immortal but not eternal. They will live on forever. Their creation was before or simultaneous with the initial creation of the heavens and the earth because we read in Job that they were present when God laid the foundations of the earth and they rejoiced. Originally, all the angels were created holy or good. But then the anointed cherub, Lucifer, rebelled against the creator when sin was found in him, according to, well, there's two chapters that we turn to for angels which chapters are they come on louder 
Ezekiel 28, Isaiah 14. Okay, faith is Hebrews 11. Love is 13. Angels are? And Ezekiel 28. Come on. You've got to catch up, people. I'm going to give a test after this service. So he fell at that time because righteousness, unrighteousness was found within him. God didn't create him evil. He created him good. And he led one-third of the host of heaven in rebellion against God. And he, since that time, is referred to now as Satan, which means adversary, one who opposes, or he's referred to as the devil, Diablos, one who slanders. Isaiah 14 tells of his rebellion in that the King James uses the title Lucifer or Shining One, Morning Star, Son of the Dawn, These creatures are great. We're going to be looking at another one towards the end of the sermon. They're they're majestic. And frankly, they're quite frightening. In Isaiah 14, God reveals to us that Lucifer, the devil, when he rebelled against him, exercised his will five times. I will, I will, I will, I will. And in Columation said, he said, I will be like the Most High. So he wanted to be God. And that's when he was cast out of heaven. The devil and all of his followers were cast out of heaven to the environs of our atmosphere, the earth. So now he's referred to as the prince of the power of the air that is now working in the sons of disobedience. So... <laughs> You wonder why we have the wickedness and evil that's going on in the world? It's because it's motivated, generated, enabled by the prince of the power of the air who is working in the sons of disobedience. The sons of disobedience are those that have not repented and submitted themselves to their creator God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Unbelievers. And you do realize that the entire earth remains in the hands of the evil one. It's within his power. So I believe Satan's fall had to take place sometime between Genesis 1.31, where God declared everything that he had created to be very good, and Genesis 3.1, where we're introduced to this serpent. Now the destiny of the devil and his followers, all the evil angels... In divine judgment, God has prepared a very special place of confinement for Satan, his demons, but also all human beings who have been created in the image of God but who have rebelled and uh, sin and remain in their sin and have not trusted Jesus Christ. And it's the lake of fire or hell. It's described, uh, described as a place of everlasting punishment and torment. It is real. It is not just an allegory. It's not just um, uh, allegorical speech or metaphorical speech. It's a real place in which the devil, all of his angels, and those that have not bowed the knee will spend eternity. The Bible is clear that the lake of fire is a literal place that will be revealed at a yet future end of the age. 
And it is a place of eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels, but into which he will also consign those individuals who did not receive him. In Matthew 25, verse 41 and 46, we read this, These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. You cannot just have eternal life and not have eternal punishment. They go together. They fit together. Now, I heard that there's some teaching going on that, I mean, there's always attacks on hell uh, by well-meaning quote-unquote Christians that say God could not do that. That's just not the nature of God. They need to understand that God is righteous. He is just. And yes, he is a loving author of salvation. He is merciful. But to those that reject that, there is righteousness and judgment. So, that is their destiny. Now, I want to mention to you something that's interesting, and maybe you've never heard about it before. So, buckle up your seatbelt, okay? I'm going to talk to you just a little bit about theophanies. Theophanies, or they sometimes are called Christophanies. There are several passages in the Old Testament that speak of this unique personage called the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord, not an angel of the Lord. It's very specific. And it, they're spoken of, he's spoken of in a way that suggests that he is actually God appearing in human form before Christ's incarnation. It's a very special title, and it's different from, as I said, an angel of the Lord. A lot of references to that. But this one, the angel of the Lord, is um, special. Theologians refer to these appearances as theophanies. Theos meaning God, and an aphany is um, uh, an appearing or becoming something that can be seen. Now, I'm going to mention these examples, and you're all familiar with them, but I don't know if you ever thought of them in this light. The angel of the Lord appeared to Hagar in Genesis 16.7. Remember, she was, she was very distraught because she had been put out by Sarah, and she was mourning with Ishmael, and God appeared to her as the angel of the Lord in Genesis 16.7. And she says, You, God, See me. Okay? After that encounter, that's what she had to say. You, God, see me. And had mercy on her, actually. And pronounced a promise to Ishmael and to Hagar. Another example is when the angel of the Lord and two other angels appeared to Abraham at the Oak of Memory. Remember right before he went to destroy uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. In Genesis 18.1, the introduction to that example, it says, the Lord, that means Yahweh, Yahweh appeared to him. And he appeared as a man with two other men. They were angels, the angel of the Lord being the Lord. And then Jacob wrestled with somebody in Genesis 32, 24 through 30. And he said after that wrestling match, oh, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been preserved. But he did have a limp (laughs) from that time on. He wrestled with God. 
He also appeared to Moses, the angel of the Lord. Very specific terminology. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from within the bush. Exodus chapter 3. And then one last one, which everybody knows. He appeared as the fourth man who stood with three. Where? Fire furnace, right? In Daniel. And that was the Lord. And there are other instances when this specific person appeared in the Old Testament and was identified as Yahweh, appearing as the angel of the Lord. You know, we don't get exhaustive information, but we get enough to make us go, wow. And it should make us go, wow, because we are so bound to our physical existence We are so materialistic. I'm not talking in a bad sense of, you know, we just want things. But we just, we don't have a spiritual other world attitude anymore. It's harder and harder, it seems, to have this. And so I want to take a little bit of time to just talk to you about these things and maybe stimulate your thinking a little bit so that we might have an eternal perspective rather than just this earthboundness that we all suffer from so much, right? Well, I, I want to go on to just explain to you a little bit because it would, I would be remiss if I didn't talk to you about demon possession. I think a lot of people worry about that, wonder about that. Is that real? You know, and yes, it is real. But I want to talk about the activity of Satan, Uh, Because he is active, he is the enemy of our souls as human beings, and he exercises that activity in in an indirect way. He works indirectly through the world, uh, 1 John 5.19, in the flesh. Galatians 5.19 through 21, works of the flesh. The world, the flesh, and the devil are not three separate enemies of the Christian. Rather, Satan works through the evil world system. Okay? This world has fallen. That's why it's got to be recreated. The millennial period of time, 1,000 years after Jesus comes and he he sits on the throne of David in Jerusalem and there's a, a rolling back of the curse, but it's not taken care of. Because at the end of that time, there is a contingent of people that raise up and go against Jesus Christ, who's ruling with a rod of iron, if you can believe it, and he just squashes them. And then comes the recreation of the heavens and the earth, because it's, it's seriously damaged by sin and unrighteousness. And this indirect activity is, is pretty subtle, but it comes along, and it exploits the fleshly nature that still wars within us. Why, even as Christians, do we continue to sin? Because we are in mortal bodies. That's why we cannot go to heaven in our mortal bodies. We must put on immortality and be changed in the twinkling of an eye, either at the rapture or at the time of our death. But now, we have flesh that dwells within us. We have that sin that dwells within us still, even though we're saved from the power of that sin, there's still that presence of sin, and it causes us problems, doesn't it? Well, the direct activity of Satan is seen in Christ's ministry because he tempted Christ in the wilderness. That was a bona fide temptation when he said, 
and took him up on that pinnacle and said, hey, all the kingdoms of the earth, I'll give them to you if you worship. He holds them in his power. And Christ said, get away from me. Worship God alone. That's in Matthew chapter 4. And he, he won over that temptation, whereas our great father Adam did not. Another way directly that he entered and tried to deal with Christ to thwart his work at every level was in John 8.44 where Jesus reveals that he is the devil, the father of lies. And he hounded Jesus knowing who he was while he was on earth. He possessed Judas to accomplish the betrayal. In the lives of unbelievers, frightening, he blinds their minds to hinder their understanding of the gospel, according to 2 Corinthians 4.4. That's why evangelism, and talk about the enemy of our souls, we don't talk about the gospel to people. We don't talk about God to people because we're fearful. Where's that coming from? There's spiritual warfare every day in our lives. And we need to identify it and resist the devil so he flees from us. And then we can, in simple terms like our brother Mike Waters, just tell other people about God. They're heading for a Christless eternity, folks. And you might have the joy of leading somebody to the Lord like Mike did. I didn't hear from him 44 years later. I sent that message immediately to Mike. What an encouragement to him, huh? When the gospel is heard, the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart, according to Luke 8.12, the parable of the sower, right? He uses persecution, false religion, to hinder the gospel from going forward. This is his work in the lives of unbelievers. And he may possess an unbeliever. Possession by an unclean spirit, okay, an evil spirit, is a real thing, and we see it much more active in the Gospels. And it's a very real experience. It is still present today. He is able to possess unbelievers. It's very prim, uh, prevalent in primitive cultures. Taliabo, we saw much of it. But not so often seen in modern ones. Why? Because he's got us chasing our tail in other ways. We'll use the term materialistic in the, the bad sense where we're just trying to amass all the things we can in this world and not paying attention to God and his desires for us because I'm talking about um, believers that can get caught up in this stuff. Unbelievers are totally caught up in it because they don't have God in their souls motivating, convicting, and so forth. In the lives of believers, Satan is active as well. Not in the same way. He tempts believers to pride, to materialism, as I mentioned, to, to immorality. Any of that going around at all? To discouragement, depression, to having unforgiving spirits. The devil hinders the ministries of believers. Uh, we see he, Paul was hindered to go in certain places that he wanted to go and bring the gospel. 
He promotes false teaching among believers. Like I mentioned, there seems to be an uptick, a surge in talking about hell isn't real. God wouldn't be like that. They use very slick words to deceive you, but it's false teaching. The devil promotes anger and bitterness and division. You know the lie he told me for 19 years is, you're Italian. That's the way Italians act. They get angry and they let everybody know about their anger. And that's manly. Wow. Thank you not very much. Wow. I became a Christian and realized (laughs) that is not the way I am to act and battled with anger for years and years as I was a new Christian because I cultivated it for 19 years, folks. And you may have other sins that you cultivated and you struggle with. Keep fighting. You will gain the victory. Here's the, here's, here's the good news, okay? He cannot possess you. <laughs> Thank God. Although I'm sure sometimes people that saw me angry thought, maybe he's possessed right? But the devil cannot possess you. You may not be possessed as a believer by an unclean spirit. Why? For greater is he that is now in you than he that is in the world. You have someone living within you called the Spirit of God, third person, okay? And he is in you, and you are in Christ, and therefore you cannot be possessed. Possession is scary stuff. Possession means that a spirit has taken control of the body of the person it's possessing, the speech, the vocal cords, the actions. Okay. Some would say that a lot of the uh, serial killing that we see and the crazy insanity that we just can't hardly believe people can be that wicked and do that stuff that they're actually possessed by a demon. And I would tend to agree with that. Now, I want to talk a little bit more, and I just want to let you know that you don't have to worry about demon possession. There was a a, a movement afoot back in the 90s, I think it was, called the Deliverance Movement. Some of you may have heard about it. Neil Anderson wrote, a book called Seven Steps to Freedom and so forth. Hey, listen, that book, the first part of that book is killer. It talks about our position in Christ. And then the second part, he gets into all this strange stuff where, you know, our ancestors' sins pass on to us. Whatever happened about being cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ? From all unrighteousness. Whatever happened to you are a new creature in Christ? Old things are passed away. All things have become new. Well, that teaching on deliverance kind of set those verses aside. And they got a lot of Christians confused. And Mary and I took the opportunity when we did the Taliabo story, which is a movie about the Taliabo coming to conversion. Um, we did a second movie called Deliver from the Power of Darkness so we could use the Taliabo, who were definitely demon-possessed, to refute that erroneous doctrine. That's actually a polemic against the deliverance movement. So you get a chance to see that. You can see what we had to say about that there. But anyways, um, in the angelic ranks, there are actually governmental rulers, okay? There's a personal devil and hordes of fallen angels that fulfill his bidding called demons. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. This is very practical for us, okay? 
not against people. And we get caught up in this a lot. But we read in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. The little preposition before each of those designations is the Greek preposition pros, P-R-O-S. And it shows that each entity is distinct. So there's a highly organized and structured rank of evil marshaled against God and against his people. That would be us. The powers, the world forces, the rulers, the spiritual forces of wickedness. Each is a different rank of demons. And we're to stand against the rulers of the powers and the world forces of darkness. Now, we often find ourselves struggling in life. I don't know about you, but life is filled with struggles. And Paul in Ephesians 12 is trying to remind believers where the true struggle really is taking place. One author put it like this, and I like this, quote, what is the one thing that gives you the most difficulty in life? Well, for most of us, the answer to that question is in one form or another, it comes down to one thing, people, (laughs) right? I mean, hey, the ministry would be great without people, right? People are complex, all of us, okay? You may struggle intensely with family members. I know none of us have that issue going on. Or your spouse, obviously, none of us suffer from that. Or maybe your children, or maybe you struggle with your parents' children. Or you may have personality conflicts and struggles in your office. Anybody ever at odds with their boss or managers? Or possibly in your church, God forbid, that never happens here. No struggle between people in church here. Or in your neighborhood. I've had some choice neighbors. Choice neighbors. Struggle? Oh, gosh. In Indonesia, I had a difficult neighbor. Thought he'd be the undoing of me, but God prevailed. But the Apostle Paul says that our struggle is not against flesh and blood. What is he talking about? Our true battle is not against our political opponents, because, you know, election season's coming. I can hardly wait, folks. It's ramping up for 2024 already. Um, No, we're not going to do that here. Not at Beacon. We're not going to do that. Okay? Protect ourselves. Let's protect ourselves. It's not against our family or our co-workers or neighbors or any other human agency. The battle is not against people, but against unseen spiritual powers. In fact, the entire human race is under a vicious assault by certain principalities and powers, world rulers of darkness, and wicked spirits in high places. End quote. Stop and think when you're having problems with another person. What is Satan trying to do in this situation? Because I'll tell you, if you step back, if you can, and we're, it's so difficult because we're so subjective and personally engaged, but if you can step back from your situation far enough, you can see where this is an attack to somehow or other displace our spirituality 
and cause us to a hindrance in our ongoing sanctification or ministry to glorify God. Spiritual warfare deflects us from the things that are really important, and it gets our eyes on one another. Bitterness and unforgiving hearts do not aid us in our sanctification. And the Spirit must change His ministry when we're acting like that. He changes His ministry in our life from comforting and encouraging and guiding us into all truth. And now He's got to become the convictor (laughs) to bring us back in line or the chastener to bring us back in line. When we lose sight of where the real battle lies and begin to blame people in our lives rather than the devil and his forces, whom Peter uh, Peter informs us that it's your adversary, the devil, who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That's the real source. You know, it's... And, and I've done this. I've done this in ministry, and I've done this with my wife. If you can get a common enemy, you stay away from each other a little bit better. You know, you're not picking at each other. So kind of funnily, uh, in, a, in a fun way, <laughs> when things are misplaced in our house, <clears throat> we'll say, Granny did that. Well, Granny's been dead for a long time, so her ghost is obviously doing it, but you get my point, right? I don't accuse her of moving it. She doesn't accuse me of moving it. We accuse together, Granny. Can't touch her. She's gone. She's out of here. Okay? Truth of the matter is, the devil is behind a lot of our struggles. And if we would but back away from trying to accuse other people and realize that the devil's trying to trip us up and stop what God is trying to do in our lives we'd be a lot better for it. You know, when we lose sight that we have an adversary, it's incredible. And what a picture. (coughs) The sheer intimidation of a lion roaring, right? And then to be told that he's actually seeking us to devour us. But we have a Savior. Satan has been defeated Because Jesus defeated him on the cross, and the proof of his defeat of Satan is he rose from the dead, the empty tomb. He said, it's finished, people. It's finished. It's that finished work that he did on our behalf that is our source of victory over every intimidating temptation of that roaring lion. Therefore, we need to claim the victory by faith with our lips, but we need to live in obedience to the truth, and that is the resistance that makes the devil flee. Let's look at these various ranks that are rallied against us, okay? There are rulers, rulers, Ephesians 6, 12 says. The word used for rulers is arche, and it means origin or beginning, actually the first in order or cause. These are the top of the the line, these rulers. And notice that in the context, it refers to them as exalted rulers, plural. There are many of these rulers. It's a rank of fallen angels. And it's seen to be so by the latter part of the verse because it says their sphere of operation is darkness. 
They operate in a whole different domain. And it's the same idea as in Jude 6. Angels who did not keep their own domain, that is arche. They did not keep their position, but defaulted to follow the devil. They abandoned their proper abode, their proper position. And now they're arche in the devil's army. There are powers, it says. Again, plural. They're authorities. It means authority. And they have authority over others. Colossians 1.13 says that believers have been delivered out of the authority of darkness. Colossians 1.13. Uh, the word is used domain there. It means authorities. You can look it up. These demons work in the realm of darkness and they have authority over those who are yet within that realm. Remember 1 John 5.19 and we know the whole world is in the power of the evil one. But they also exercise temptations and all sorts of stuff to believers. I remember talking to a Taliabo man that had been uh, possessed by seven demons that he tried to hire shamans to get out of him, to exercise out of him, and it was only when he believed the gospel that he was free from them. And then those demons came back and oppressed him when he was out in the uh, gardens by himself in a garden house, and he came running to me after about three days of suffering that oppression, and he was just, he hadn't slept, he was all disheveled and, and just really a mess. A good friend of mine, Kala, uh, hymnist, he, he wrote hundreds of hymns in Taliabo. And he just said, what do I do? What do I, what do I do? I don't know what to do. And I said, you know, he, he's a defeated foe. And I just read the scriptures to him. And I said, before he possessed you, he said, yes, I know, I know. And it's them. It's them. He knew who they were. Okay? But they couldn't possess him anymore. And so to illustrate it, I walked into my office. I had a porch off my office that was where we met with the tribal people to just come up and talk. And I went into my office door, and I, and I went inside there, and I said, here, come sit here. And he sat right close to the office door, and then I shut the door and just put my arm out, and I kept trying to get him, but he is just out of reach. And I said, that's what he's doing. That's how they're acting with you now. They can't touch you. You're safe. Kala, you're safe. And then I went in the office door. I said, this is what you need to do. And I just kicked it shut. And I slammed it shut. And I said, tell him to go away. And so you know what he did? He went home and he just sang hymns. Hymns that he had written over and over and just fought and resisted the devil. And he got over that. He got over that. But these powers are real. They knew their names. They never told us their names. But those tribal people knew who had authority over them. And there are world forces. Oh, do you think? World forces. The word is cosmocrator. Cosmocrator. Or cosmocrats. Cosmocrats. And this present world is dominated by cosmocrats, who are the host of fallen angels, who live and breathe to fulfill everything their wicked ruler dictates to them against God and against the truth and against those who love and follow the truth. We're seeing them raise their heads, folks. We're now going global, aren't we? It's no longer just the United States. Things are happening on a global scene, and there's a cohesion to it 
that makes our heads spin. We're like, who's doing this? Well, it isn't Schwab, okay, from the World Economic Center. It's not him, but he may be being used by these cosmocrats, and I believe he is. We have an enemy of our soul who oversees the enemies of our soul. And so it's abundantly clear that there is a hierarchy of angelic beings, both elect and evil. Now, all this might sound frightening, and I admit that it's intense and sobering, okay? But we have not been given a spirit of fear, people, but of power and of love and of self-control, 2 Timothy 1.7. We are warriors for the truth, but some of us aren't acting like that. And we've already stated, greater is he that is in us than he that's in the world. Our Savior, our friend, our older brother, Jesus Christ, will protect his own. If you are in Christ, you are safe. So stop worrying about it, okay? Lay that anxiety aside. First Peter 5, 7 says that we need to trust him because he cares for us. We don't have to be filled with worry because he cares for us. We don't need to be afraid, but we do need to stand against him. We need to resist him, the scriptures teach us. If we resist him, he will flee from us because the battle's been won and we're resisting in God. So Ephesians six ten through 16 teaches us about the real warfare that we're to be in. And it's not addressing demons by any stretch, nothing like that. It's not using sage, you know, to to purify the house. It's, it's, It's not that kind of protection or any other kind of human effort. Rather, it is the Bible that teaches us that we are to be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. I'm just going right through Ephesians chapter 6. Verses 10 and following. We are to put on the full armor of God. He's given us armor that we are to put on. It's an act. It's a, it's a deliberate act. We are to put on the belt of truth that he's given to us. We are to put on the breastplate of righteousness. This is just all remembering we're saved. We remember the gospel. We remember who we are, children of the King. And we're to use the gospel like a hobnailed boot. Um, you know, the warriors back then, the, 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 the military, they used to have nails in their boots so that they would be firm when they put the foot down so they could fight. Hand-to-hand combat, and they had shields, right? And those hobnailed boots so they can stand firm. We are to use the gospel like that, Ephesians 6, 10 and following tell us. We are to exercise our faith like a shield that puts out flaming arrows that are shot at us. Um, And we're to use our salvation like a helmet to protect our minds. Stop doubting your salvation. You didn't do it. He did. And he doesn't vacillate. You're in, you're out. You're in, you're out. If he did it, it's done. He said it is finished. And we can rest in that, people. Pick up the Bible, read it, study it, love it, and use it like a sword against the devil and all his temptations. That's what Jesus did in Matthew 4. He quoted Scripture back. That's how he resisted the devil. 
And he finally fleed from them. Pray all the time, it says, all day, everywhere, and for everything. Be alert. (coughs) That's intentional. Be alert. Don't be lazy in your mind. And faithful to do all those things that are in Ephesians uh, 6.10 and following. So in the end, you will be filled with perseverance. You'll be able to go on step after step after step. That's the war that we're in. Now, one last thing regarding angels, and I think you should um, just, it should uh, bolster our faith and encourage your heart. Did you know that there are angelic special forces? I told you that there's ranks of angels, right? Well, I mean, there are serious tier one operators. Michael's one of them. And this is very, very, very cool. And they serve God as they watch over us, not as guardian angels, but as they watch over the heirs of salvation, God's people. There are startling examples of that kind of structure within an angelic realm where there are actually chief princes. And one of these examples concerns Michael, and I want you to turn to Daniel with me, Daniel chapter 10, and I'll be closing with this. Guys are really quiet. I hope you're not bored with this. I get really excited about it, but I always am fearful that I'm more excited than you are about it. So, But bear with me. Okay, so I'm going to read from uh, verses 10 through 14 for you. It says, Then behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. A little bit of background here. Daniel had been reading the scriptures And remember, Daniel was in the Babylonian captivity, and he figured out when 70 years would be up, and it was up. And he's like, why are we still in captivity? And he prays to God, asking God about that. And he didn't receive an answer to prayer. For for three weeks, 21 days, he was struggling and, and mourning over the fact that God hadn't answered him. So here it comes, okay? So then behold, Daniel writes, a hand touched me, and set me trembling on my hands and knees. That's what happens when an angel comes, let alone the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you kidding me? These people that say, hey, Jesus is my homeboy. Or I talked to Jesus this morning when I was shaving. God help him. What a very, 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 very low view of God they have to think of him or angels in that light. Okay? He trembled, and he was on his hands and knees. And the angel said to him, Oh, Daniel... Man of high esteem, understand the words that I'm about to tell you and stand upright, for I have now been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Now, why was he trembling? Well, I want you to look over to uh, verses 5 and 6. Daniel says, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, there was a certain man dressed in linen whose waist was girded with a belt of pure gold, a booth paths. And his body was also like beryl. And his face had the appearance of lightning. His eyes were like flaming torches. His arms and feet like the gleam of polished bronze. And the sound of the words were like the sound of a tumult. I don't believe this was Jesus. Although in Revelation, there's another picture that's frightfully close. But 
This is just an angel that appeared to him. Why do you think he was trembling? Because he saw him. He saw him, okay? He says, I want you to stand up because I have something to say to you. Do not be afraid, Daniel, for from the first day that you sent your heart on understanding this and on humbling yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to your words. So from the very first, when Daniel bowed down before God and humbly asked him, what is up? The 70 years have completed, and we're still in captivity. And he's saying, why? Explain this to me. And he prayed to God. And from that very day, God sent his answer. But, this angel says, the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for 21 days. (laughs) Angels were fighting for 21 days. The messenger that had been sent by God to deliver the answer to Daniel's prayer got in a bar fight with the prince of the kingdom of Persia. And then behold, he wasn't able to withstand him. Michael, the archangel, one of the chief princes, came to help me. (laughs) He needed some reserves to come and help him. For I had been left there with the king of Persia. He's fighting these hordes of angels because he wants to get this message. This is so awesome. And now I have come to give you an understanding of what will happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision pertains to the days yet future. Oh, my. Daniel prayed for understanding, for the reason that his people had not been returned to Israel yet, and he had been mourning for three weeks, waiting for an answer. And this angel had been sent to him by God to let him know that God heard his prayers from the very first day he prayed, but God's answer to his prayers had been delayed 21 days because of this battle that was raging. Michael, one of the chief princes, tier one operator, this guy is the top of the top of warring angels. This angel, what must he be like, people? I mean, we used to have a picture of an angel with a sword, right? It's supposed to be Michael. You see, Michael is also referred to in Jude 9. He came to assist this other angel so he could deliver God's answer to Daniel's prayer. One note of the archangel, only Michael is called an archangel in the Scriptures. And there is only one other mention of an archangel, angel, and that is in 1 Thessalonians 4.16, when the rapture occurs, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel heralding for him. That's probably Michael, because we don't hear of any others. In 10.21, the messenger speaks of Michael saying to Daniel this, Yet there is no one who stands firmly with me against these forces except Michael, your prince. So he's saying that Michael, the archangel, is a prince of the people of Israel. He's their guardian. He's their warrior. And when compared with Daniel 12.1, where we read Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, it seems obvious that God has designated him as the protector of Israel. 
And that, that's not the only time I said we hear of Michael. In Jude 9, he's mentioned disputing with none other than the devil himself over the body of Moses. Uh, we had a Q&A um, before I left for California in our Wednesday night Bible study, and somebody said, why was, why was the angel disputing with the devil over the body of Moses? And it's like, I don't know why. Just the fact that he was is enough. Wow. You know, I mean, sometimes we don't get all the details. But Michael had obviously been tasked with burying the body of Moses, but the devil disputed with him over the task. So why was he tasked to bury Moses? There must have been something special in the manner of the disposition of the body of Moses. Maybe, you know, Moses did appear on the Mount of Transfiguration along with Elijah. Elijah was, was taken up in a chariot of fire. Maybe Moses' body didn't rot. I, I don't know. I mean, this is all in my mind, right? We're just, you can only just think, wow, what was going on? So as many as believe Moses will be one of the two witnesses in Revelation 11, 3 through 13. So Michael was to secure the body of Moses and bury him, but the devil disputed with Michael over his body. And Jude 9, we are informed that Michael called upon the Lord to rebuke the devil. Michael, the top of the top, the foremost guy in this angelic realm, the archangel, would not rail against the devil. He did not confront him. He asked the Lord to do that on his behalf. It just shows us a little bit that we need to be a little careful with our understanding of this realm and just respect where respect is due, not in a good way. Michael wasn't respecting the devil, but he knew who he was and his rank. He's a, a reigning cherub that fell. So in Daniel 10.20, we find out that not only is Michael returning to do battle with the prince of the kingdom of Persia, but he also anticipated battle with the prince of Greece. Look at it. 10.20. Then he said, Do you understand why I came to you? But I shall now return to fight against the prince of Persia. So I am, I am going forth, and behold, the prince of Greece is about to come. Okay, when they're saying prince of, prince of, they're not talking about human beings. They're talking about angelic adversaries. So this is all going on. I love when God just pulls back the curtain a little bit, gives us a little glance, you know. It's really wrong for us then to take those little glances and make whole doctrines out of them because we don't have enough information for that. So there's so much more than meets the eye going on all around us, not in the mundane world of our senses, but in the spiritual realm that is all around us. In Revelation 12, 7 through 9, and I'll close right with this. This is a second illustration of the structure within an angelic realm. It says, and there was war in heaven. There was war in heaven. Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. And the dragon and all of his angels waged war, and they were not strong enough. And there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and the Satan, and who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down 
to the earth. I believe that this was when he was cast out of heaven. But it's looking retrospectively back at it. And his angels were thrown down with him. So, beloved, just understand that the things that we talk about in this pulpit are supernatural things. The gospel is supernatural. God is someone we cannot see. But Jesus Christ was the image of God for us. And so we yield ourselves to our creator. Uh, we'll, we'll get to that next week. Who is the creator? Is it God? Is it Jesus? Is it the Holy Spirit? Well, that's all in Genesis 1. And we'll be there next week. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have pulled back the veil for us to at least see a little bit of what's going on. And we confess to you that it startles us and it's amazing. And we pray, God, that you would protect our hearts from becoming afraid and help us to see the power that we have being in Christ, in the body of Christ, and being preserved and protected because we are yours. In Jesus' name, amen.